0: All right, Genesis chapter seventeen And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, "I am the Almighty God, walk before me, and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, as for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be called. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee, behold I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly, twelve princes shall he beget, And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. And Abraham was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin." In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael his son. And all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with money of a stranger, were circumcised with him. And this is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, that we might understand your everlasting covenant, that it indeed is Christ himself. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. Um, the title of this morning's ser- um, sermon is Christ the Covenant Keeper. Christ the Covenant Keeper. Now, as I mentioned to you in my preamble, um, that I want us to appreciate what is said here in Genesis 17 in terms of the covenant, what the Lord is actually talking about. One of the points you should have gotten from last week was that the circumcision of the foreskin as set forth here in Genesis 17 is a token of the covenant verse 11 plainly tells us that it is a token of the covenant it is not the covenant and therefore has no substance to it this is not a novel idea or, or new principle in the bible i'm going to take you to genesis chapter 9 where noah has come out of the ark and god is speaking to him in genesis chapter 9 verses 11 through 17 we read and god spake unto noah and to his sons with him saying And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that goeth out of the ark to every beast of the earth. Verse 11. And I will establish my covenant with you, and this is it. Neither shall any flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the covenant. Man had nothing to do with the covenant. He's simply the beneficiary of it. Now, verse 12, and God said, this is the token. This is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Don't get it in your head that a token, excuse me, that a covenant requires you to agree to it or that requires you to participate in some uh, way to make it come to fruition. Noah had nothing to do with this. The animals had nothing to do with it. God made the covenant. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And by the way, so you can remember that and so that I will remember the covenant as though God needed something to remember anything. I'm going to put a bow in the sky and then you'll feel comfortable when you see that. So back in Genesis 17, we read that. Given that circumcision here is but a token or sign, we should appreciate that it means nothing materially in terms of our salvation any more than the rainbow will keep God from destroying all flesh upon the earth. It is nothing but refracted light. The covenant is anchored not in the token, but in God's promise, in God's word. So you'll find many places in the scripture that make reference to God's promise. God's promise is what keeps him from doing something other than what he said he would do. He promised he would do something, and therefore he would do it. The bow is but a sign of the covenant, as is circumcision, which is why we read things like we do in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18 and 19, we read, "...is any man called being circumcised?" Being called meaning called to Christ. If you're circumcised, he's speaking of the Jews. Those were referred to as the circumcision. So they're circumcised, but not all of them are called. So the Lord is setting a spiritual truth here. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That's a ridiculous notion. It's impossible. If you're circumcised, you can't become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? In other words, he's speaking about a Gentile being called. Let him not Be circumcised. In other words, let him not be circumcised in the flesh. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. He's talking about the circumcision of the flesh. Verse 15 of Galatians 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature. Regeneration is what is in view here in terms of what the token points to. So though circumcision of the flesh means nothing materially respecting our salvation, as a token or as a sign, it means everything typologically. In this regard, circumcision is similar to New Testament believer baptism. Just to be clear, circumcision and believer baptism represent two different things typologically and should not be conflated. So by way of example, we might ask the question, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Well, the next question would be, what do you mean by baptism? Do I have to be baptized in water? Well, The answer is no. You do not have to be baptized in water to be saved. Do I need to be baptized by the Holy Ghost? Absolutely. You must be baptized by the Holy Ghost. So in like manner, we ask the question, do I need to be circumcised? Well, you mean in the flesh? Well, the answer is no, you do not need to be circumcised in the flesh. What about your heart? Does your heart need to be circumcised? And the answer is absolutely, your heart must be circumcised. Now, consider the two thieves that were on the cross with Christ. Both go up on the cross reviling against Jesus. Both have their hands and feet nailed to the cross neither can do any work to affect their salvation later one of them repents and yet there's no outward change to him only an inward change to his heart whereas jesus tells him that quote today shalt thou excuse me today shalt thou be with me in paradise we know that while his hands and feet were literally nailed to a cross and unmovable he was baptized with the Holy Ghost and his heart was circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He was a new creature in Christ, which is what Galatians 6.15 is what actually avails a person. So clearly the thief could do no work contributing towards his salvation. And neither can we do any work contributing to our salvation nor could Abraham do any work contributing to his salvation. So, looking at Abraham again, I want to consider the big picture. Romans 4 says that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. And Galatians chapter 3 builds on this, where we read that the law, which came 430 years after God's promise to Abraham, cannot take away nor override the promise. Just like God's promise not to flood the earth was anchored in the promise, the promise that um, God would be the God of Abraham was anchored in God's promise. Um, Now, Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, I'll read that. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And we've seen that looking in the past at the promises that were made to Abraham and his seed as different than the promises that were made to the seed. The promises made to the seed refer to those that are physically related to Abraham and are all conditional. The promises to Abraham and his seed are seeds, uh, meaning Christ being the seed, are unconditional. So in verse 17, we read, And this I say, actually I'll start in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Verse 18 for if the inheritance be of the law it is no more of promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise it's a gift it was given to Abraham as a gift 430 years later comes the promise and excuse me comes the law which was conditional and God is saying hey that doesn't apply if you are a recipient of the promise the law does not apply to you So what the Lord is telling us here is that God made a promise to Abraham in and through Christ. 430 years after God made the promise to Abraham, he then institutes the law. So he's telling us in Galatians 3 that the introduction of the law cannot and therefore does not disannul the promise he made to Abraham. Now, Same logic. In like manner, the requirement to circumcise the foreskin of the flesh cannot and therefore does not disannul the promise God made to Abraham. Um, So again, in Romans chapter 4 and other places in the Bible, we read that what is true for Abraham is true for all believers. The gospel has never changed from Adam downward. What's true for Abraham is true for all believers, and the Lord clearly says that in Romans chapter 4. Now, I want to look at Romans chapter 8 and apply some logic there as well as it bears on our subject. In Romans eight twenty nine through 31, we read, "...for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. No one and no thing can be against us. Abraham was foreknown by God and called by God just like every one of the saints. If God be for us, God before them, who can be against us? Who can be against them? No ordinance, no one, no thing, no person can be against us. No ordinance, such as circumcision or baptism or any law, can be against us, nor can it be against Abraham. God foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. If that is true of you, then you will be conformed to the image of his son. You will be conformed to the image of his son. Verse two, thirty-two through thirty-five of Romans eight. We read, "He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?" So, having given us the life of his son, which he did when he circumcised him on the cross, the, uh, he was circumcised when he was crucified. What might God ever withhold from us that could ever compare with the death of his son, which he gave us to his love? So verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who? Satan? Moses? The law? Will that lay a charge against you? Will your neighbor accuse you of something? Or what about yourself? Will you accuse yourself of something? What might you be charged with? Failing to be circumcised or failing to circumcise in the flesh? Failing to keep the law? Failing to be baptized or to baptize? Failing to keep the Lord's table? What would you be possibly be charged with? Verse 33 says, it is God that justifieth. If God has justified you, you are just. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. God condemned Christ in our stead, and being satisfied that justice was meet, raised him from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Since Christ paid the penalty for his people, saving them from the consequences of their sin, and now intercedes on their behalf, how would one approach that bench with an accusation against you respecting some ordinance or law that does not implicate God himself? Obviously, it cannot be done, and it would be ridiculous to presume that anybody could approach the bench of God and lay an accusation against you that wasn't dealt with in Christ. It would implicate God himself as being unjust or having been impotent with respect to your sins, as though he hadn't paid for all of them. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The short answer is no one and no thing can separate you from the love of Christ. No ordinance, no law, no accusation, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, having said all that, let's flip it back over from the sovereignty of God onto the responsibility of man in this respect. And this is the caution that I have for people. It is in our nature to gravitate towards works-based righteousness, works-based religion. So if you think the fact that the Jews were circumcised in the flesh meant that God owed them something, that he was covenantally bound to bring them to glory because of it, which is not true as we shall see, you will be tempted to apply that to yourself in some small way. And that's the danger. You will logically think that if someone could, at any point in the history of man, contribute in some small way to their salvation, if they could do it, and so can you. And you will be condemned for it with them because you are by the works of the flesh, however minor, endeavoring to justify yourself before God. You are not completely trusting in the finished work of Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, very clearly says that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified and that our justification is by the faith of Christ alone. So beware the siren call that would ply your subconscious into believing that there is something in you or something you might do that is meritorious of salvation or God's favor, because there isn't. All our righteousness are as filthy rags as the Lord tells us in Isaiah 64, 6. Scripture tells us further that all unrighteousness is sin and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So even if you kept the law, which man cannot do, if you kept it for the wrong reasons, you would still be condemned. And this doesn't even speak about the issue of original sin for which Abraham, like the rest of us, would still be justly condemned for. But again, Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, so we know that God dealt with that issue of original sin also, just as he does for all the elect. Now, with this review of circumcision and some basic principles, let's again look at Genesis 17 with an eye to understand it in the light of these basic principles, that there is nothing that in Abraham that would warrant God's favor rooted in his works, but rather... Having been called out of an idolatrous background, he, like the rest of us, is a vessel of honor in God's great house, a workmanship of Christ's, a person upon whom God bestowed his love, as he does for all his people, in and through the person of Jesus Christ. I want to look at the first two verses first of Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to read those. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 17 and when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Now, I'm sure you can read this in two different ways because people do. Verse one, be perfect, and I will make my covenant. Or you can read it, be perfect period, and I will make my covenant. People wanna bring those together, slur it together. In the first case, be perfect and I will make my covenant. If you read it that way, that is works-based, and there are some people that believe that if Abraham walked before God and was perfect, then God would make and keep a covenant with him that the making of the covenant was conditional upon Abraham's conduct, that is of his conformity to what conditions God might set upon him or his progeny, like circumcision. This line of thinking is rooted in how they apply the conditional covenant that God made with Israel in Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus 24, which was ratified in blood. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, the Lord says, If, there's a, two letters, if ye will obey my voice and indeed keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Clearly a conditional covenant. If you'll do this, then I will do that. And three times do the Israelites say that they will do all that the Lord has spoken. And in chapter 24, it is ratified in blood. People take that understanding and they want to bring it backwards in terms of circumcision here. Now, in Genesis 17, at no point here does Abraham agree to anything. God simply tells Abraham what he, God, will do. As a matter of fact, if you look through this, God tells Abraham what he has done, what God has done that he has made Abraham a father of many nations. That's verse five. And then five times does he tell Abraham what he, God, will do. And then he tells Abraham that he, Abraham, will keep the covenant. Nothing here is conditional upon Abraham. Nothing. The Almighty God says, I shall, I have, and five times I will. And then finally he says, thou shalt all dictatorial and directive from God to Abraham, which is how this very one-sided conversation begins with the Almighty God telling Abraham to walk before him and be perfect. That's an imperative. You're going to do that. But just for the sake of argument, suppose that the covenant required that Abraham walk before God and be perfect. How long did that work out for Abraham? <laughs> Maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> In verse 16, God tells Abraham that he will have a child by Sarah. Then verse 17, we read, Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? And shall Sarah that is 99 years old bear? So apparently when Abraham was 75 years old, back in Genesis 12, too, he believed that God would make of him a great nation. Then, apparently when he was 85 years old, back in Genesis 16, he believed only half of the promise that the son would come from him, but not Sarah. And now that he's 99 years old, he believes none of it because he doesn't think that neither he nor Sarah are capable of bearing children. So how's that for our man of faith, reverentially falling on his face before the Almighty God while laughing at what God has said would happen as though it were ridiculous? And then, to add insult to injury, he advocates against the child of promise, Isaac, in favor of the child of the flesh, which is Ishmael. Verse 18, And Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Obviously, Abraham is having trouble letting go of the flesh, which I share with you is common to all people. We all have trouble letting go of the flesh, walking in um, by faith and not by sight. Clearly, the covenant does not depend on Abraham walking before God in being perfect. Otherwise, it was doomed for failure. Place any portion of a covenant upon any man other than the God-man Christ Jesus and it will fail. Abraham's only contribution to this conversation is one of disbelief and pushback, and yet In Romans chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, we are told that he is said to be, quote, the father of all them that believe, those that walk in the steps of our father Abraham. I've walked in those steps, the ones that we read here about pushing back and arguing with God. But by God's grace, I'll walk in the steps all the way to glory. So why does it say that in Romans chapter 4? because the methodology by which God imputes righteousness to Abraham is the same methodology he employs for all of us who are justified, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus says of Abraham in John chapter 8, verse 56, he says, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the cross of Christ, and he looked forward to it, just indeed as every one of us has looked back to the cross of Christ. Everyone, saved by God's grace, has looked to the cross. Of Abraham, it could also be said, as we read in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The same can be said of every one of us. Everybody can insert their name in there, of whom I am chief, because we're all sinners just like Abraham was. What is interesting is that the description of Abraham's walk, which is summarized in Romans chapter 4 and in Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't seem to match the details we read about in Genesis as Abraham's life is set before us. In Genesis, we see that Abraham stumbles in sin, as we all do, and this is helpful because we know that he yet gets to glory because God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we know that they're in glory. And just as he got to glory, so will all of us get to glory. Though we may stumble in sin now, if we're in Christ, you're going to get to glory, but Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 doesn't speak of all of these um, difficulties that he has. Scripture tells us that we shall, by much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Genesis shows us the tribulation, and yet Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 speaks of the victory. So, when perfect, and I'll put that in quotes, as Abraham was told to be by God in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, when he keeps the covenant... As God said he would do in verse 9, his life is summarized as one of a faithful walk with God. And this is because God is faithful and therefore by God's grace our walk is too. Galatians 2.20 says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He never loses one of his own. They all keep the covenant in Christ. They are all circumcised in Christ. They are all positionally obedient in Christ. They are all blameless in Christ. And they are all perfect in Christ. In Christ, the saints walk before the Almighty God and are perfect because Christ is perfect and Christ is the keeper of Of the covenant. That Christ is with Abraham and in him is alluded to in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 17, and it's also in verse 13. Now, recall last week that I said that Christ himself is the covenant. I'm going to read those verses now. I didn't read them last week, I just made reference to Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. So in Isaiah 42, 6 through 8, we read, I, the Lord, have called thee, speaking of Christ, I have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to any graven images. If you want to ascribe any point of your salvation to yourself, you are stealing God's glory. And God has said here, He will not give His glory to another. This is one of the verses that the Lord alludes to in um, Luke chapter 4 when the Lord is in the temple, and He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and He says, This day, that um, prophecy is fulfilled in your sight. In other words, it speaks about me, and I'm standing here right in front of you to open the blind eyes and bring out the prisoners. In Isaiah 49, 8 and 9, the Lord says almost the same thing. Isaiah 49, 8 through 9, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people." To establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate places, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth, to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. Jesus is the light that came upon the world and revealed himself to certain people. He is the one by whom the preaching of the gospel and him going to the cross has freed Satan's prisoners from the prison house. Isaiah 14 speaks about how Satan did not um, release his prisoners. Christ set those prisoners free when God gave him to be a covenant, when God crucified him on the cross. Jesus was given as the covenant when he was crucified. In Genesis 17, 4, here, when the Almighty God says, My covenant is with thee, he's saying that Christ is with him. Over in verse 13, when God says that my covenant shall be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant, He is speaking of the seed of Christ, which would come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back in Genesis 12, 3, you'll recall that God had said, "In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's an allusion to Christ coming from the seed of Abraham. And so the Lord is reinforcing that again here in Genesis 17, when he says that my covenant shall be in your flesh. And then down there in verse 21, he says, My covenant will I establish with Isaac. In other words, it's coming down that line. Abraham, Isaac, and then uh, Jacob, which we'll get to later. So again, to appreciate and apprehend the promises of God here in Genesis 17, we should separate the everlasting covenant, which is Christ, from the token of the covenant, which is the circumcision of the foreskin of the flesh. The token points to the spiritual reality of the seed coming through blood. It speaks of the circumcision of Christ on the cross in whom the sins of our flesh are cut off and by whom our hearts are circumcised. Circumcision of the foreskin of the flesh has nothing to do with that reality. It is only a token. What I would again draw your attention to in this section is this. If you circumcise your man-child, that does not mean that they will inherit the promise of God. Ishmael, son of Abraham, was circumcised and was yet cast out. Galatians 4.30, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. I don't know how God could make it any plainer. He says three times in Genesis 17 that Ishmael is the son of Abraham. He was circumcised. And he's telling you here that he's not going to be heir with the son of promise. So circumcision does not get you the promise. So the token means nothing in terms of placing God under obligation to man. On the other hand, what it does say here is if you fail to circumcise your man child, that person shall be cut off from, quote, his people. I remember last week or the week before we were talking about people getting buried and being buried with their people, different people. So that person that's not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. It would be peculiar indeed if it meant more than that because it would mean that men are under a different obligation to God than women are, which would contradict the gospel because women are not circumcised in the flesh. So we should appreciate the fact that it does not say that the uncircumcised man-child would be cut off from God. Last week, we read in Acts 15 from the council at Jerusalem where the church leaders worked out that circumcision was not necessary to affect salvation, at least not for the Gentiles anyway. It took them quite a while to appreciate that Abraham was a Gentile when he was justified by God, that he was justified before he was circumcised. Romans 4, um, 9 and 10 says that faith was reckoned to Abraham for justification when he was in uncircumcision. So it's a blessing for us to have the New Testament commentary on a subject that has been so misunderstood over the years. Misunderstood in a way that supplants grace with works, which is the direction that men always go. As it is written, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They supplant grace with works. So rather than look for grace, men connive ways to work in works, thinking they can obligate an holy, righteous, just, and true God into accepting their works as a means of approach. They think that they, that they can get around Christ the Son of God, and his circumcision on the cross by substituting the token of the covenant, the circumcision of the man-child, for the circumcision of God the Father's man-child, Christ Jesus, who himself is the covenant. God forbid that any would do that because they will be damned for it. As for what remains in this chapter, we see that God rather straightforwardly reaffirms. Uh, reaffirms that his promise of the everlasting covenant will come through Abraham's son, born of his wife, Sarah, which shall be called Isaac. And as for Ishmael, God will bless him in other ways. God will multiply him and make of him a great nation. But the everlasting covenant, the promise to inherit the world and have have an everlasting, eternal, loving relationship with the Almighty God, That is to Abraham and his seed, which we learn is Christ and all of those in Christ. And that covenant will be kept by Christ, whose person is the covenant and applies to all of those in him. So we see in verse 7 of Genesis 17, that is the very heart of what God sets before us here. In verse 7, he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generation for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. The Almighty God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, having established his covenant through the circumcision of Christ, is indeed our God. Amen. Amen.